Fasten your seatbelts and turn up your radio. We're going on a road trip. According to the United Nations, the world's indigenous languages are under threat of disappearing, with one language dying every two weeks and many more at risk. Revitalizing critically endangered languages is not an issue that often appears at the top of the list of urgent public policy priorities, but to the Native Americans whose languages are at risk of extinction, the loss goes to the heart of their identity. For these tribal communities, it's a matter of cultural survival. Welcome to Route 51, I'm Shireen Seward. Today we hear about efforts to preserve and restore indigenous languages and how those efforts can ensure Native American traditions, spiritual beliefs, and cultural identities. Join us today with your thoughts and questions by calling 800-780-9742 or you can email us to ideas at wpr.org. Wawa Kayash Keller-Pap is the Indigenous Knowledge Development Coordinator at the Wada Kadading Ojibwe Language Institute. His work focuses on connecting his community to Ojibwe language and lifeways and their intertwined importance. Wawa Kayash, thank you so much for joining us today. Bonjour, miigwech for having me. Also with us today is Waknoe Ben Greeno, the Menominee Language and Culture Coordinator with the Menominee Indian School District, the 2019 Wisconsin High School Teacher of the Year. He was also a 2022 First Peoples Fund We the Peoples Before Education Fellow. Waknoe, welcome to Route 51. Also, Wawanan. Well, I am really looking forward to hearing about the programs that you're both involved in. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, I'd like to hear about the history behind the issue. So what led, what kinds of factors led to the situation we find ourselves in now with so many languages disappearing? Walk no way. Let's start with you. Oh, geez. Where do we begin? Um, boarding school era, um, colonialism. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of factors that, that happened. Um, uh, reservation period um, where our people were, um, forced to li- sometimes live on lands that didn't that we don't have connection to. Um, sometimes uh, we were forced to, well, not sometimes, but we were definitely forced not to speak our language um, or practice our cultural or religious beliefs. And so, uh, after after years and generations of that happening, um, now we are at a point where we are trying to um, revitalize, reclaim. Um, and uh, really just kind of start living our language and cultural ways again. Well, Kayash, do you have a sense of how many languages have been lost and how many remain? Um, a lot. I... Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Too many. Too many. I, I, I'm not up on the statistics on, on that. If you're referring to all of indigenous North America or worldwide, um, they continue to be threatened, and many are endangered, many are gone, um, that they have no remaining speakers. Um, yeah, I, I don't know the numbers exactly to that. I always say it's too many, mm-hmm. and more needs to be done to help with language. We always think of it as a journey back to ourselves to redefine and reconnect to the spaces from which we were disconnected. And this is very much about about. Um, a land, a land grab, you know, to displace people uh, about resources and control, and 
you know, our, our working language is, is um, their acts of defiance. Just the fact of us speaking our language is, is an act of defiance, really, and, and about us exercising our educational sovereignty, sovereignty as a people, you know, and it's about loss of identity, loss of purpose, loss of strength and health. And uh, we have spent generations seeking ourselves, but we believe that language is the catalyst for the reconnection. Each of you is involved in a dedicated effort to teach Indigenous language to young people, and I want to hear about those programs. Walk away. I understand the Menominee Nation started a language immersion classroom uh, several years ago, and then last year the Menominee Indian School District created a pre-K and kindergarten charter school. So explain how those programs came to be and how they work. Well, we, we really looked at um, what other other tribes were doing and what uh, other indigenous people around the world were doing. Um, we looked at uh, language nests, dual language immersion programs, and, and really tried to figure out um, what was needed, what, what could work in our community, uh, what has worked in other communities like um, over in LCO, Wadukadating, um, we took a lot of inspiration from from what they were doing, and um, and so we we developed a a, a program um, that was much like a, a language nest, a birth to birth to five year olds in our daycare and uh, Head Start programs, but we had a problem with that we didn't have enough um, teachers, so uh, we started um, a program through our through our tribe to uh, really kind of like grow our own language speakers, uh, immersion teachers, for specifically for these classrooms. And that started about, I believe, six years ago. And, um, and now, you know, as, as, as we open Kakena Wapatat, our, our pre-K and K, what we are, what we are working on is, is, is building our program along with those students that, those little babies that started um, six years ago in our immersion daycare uh, facility. So now they're, they're at that age where they're like five or six years old and needing to be supported in the language. And our hope is that Kakena Waptat will grow with our kids. It, what did it feel like walking away when, when that, those first days that the charter school was open, it must have been quite... Uh, quite a feeling for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the excitement um, that the community has for for this program. You know, it's it's a we we're in we're considered uh, almost extinct as a language. Um, Menominee only exists here on on our on our reservation. Um, we don't have Menominee nations in other parts of the country. Um, so our our pool of of elders and speakers, first language speakers, is is very small. Uh, but the the kind of the fervor around uh, language revitalization here in our community is is, is great. Um, it's we're supported by by so many different people in our community, and you really saw that on like like on our opening day, mm-hmm. where we had. Um, you know, people come and we did, you know, our honor song and, and we, we, we did it really, we did it right. We did it in the correct way. And we invited all the people that have been involved. And um, we also honored the elders that, um, that kept the language going throughout these years. 
Wawakeash, tell us about your school. How did this idea grow from a pilot program to the school it is today? Um, we very much started in a similar way. Um, you know, we knew that we were losing speakers and we knew that the existing models of education and uh, community behaviors were not stabilizing language loss and they weren't promoting greater numbers of proficient speakers, monolingual, bilingual speakers of uh, Ojibwe English. And so um, we started with a lot of volunteer effort. Uh, groups of us got together, very dedicated first speakers, community members, and um, educators. And um, <clears throat> we just started with a with a small classroom space, a uh, kindergarten group, and must have been around 2,000 or so. And uh, we just worked diligently to keep stacking grades and extending that continuum. Our goal is to go from birth all the way to high school and beyond. Uh, there are Indigenous models in existence who have succeeded in that task and continue to grow their programs and their organizations, and so we know it's possible uh, there's some great resources and networks to accomplish that. But we started in a similar way. It was a lot of community volunteer time. And we we just put first that we have to reclaim the spaces that our people occupy, our schools, our education. And we've always been, you know, historically, we've been intellectuals, educators, artists, poets, poets scientists. Um, and our languages in those times was never the problem. So we reclaim our indigenous excellence and our academic rigor, and we resist the, the internalized colonizer mindset. Um, well, Wawakeash, okay, you, you want to go through high school. Right now, what, uh, what ages are, are able to take part in this program? At Wadukudading, which is located on the campus of the Lakutere Ojibwe School in Northwest Wisconsin on the Odawazaga-Igan Lakutere Ojibwe Reservation. We have a program that is kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, we have been a preschool previously, which we will build in eventually, but we would like to go all the way to grade 12. And we're slated to begin high school in the fall of 2023 of this year. So who are the teachers and caregivers? You've both talked about the importance of the volunteers in the community uh, and the, the, the people that, that you've connected with. Walk No Way, where do you draw the teachers from? Uh, well, it, it really has started com coming from our um, Menominee Language and Culture Commission um, through their program to create those immersion teachers. So they, the teachers that we pulled in um, for here, I've, have already been working in our Head Start and uh, daycare, and then we also have um, a long-term sub that 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 is just graduating from that immersion program. So that that program has been vital to um, the revitalization efforts, the immersion program here on uh, Menominee Reservation. And you've both used the term first language speakers. Waknoi, what what does that mean exactly? Well, that's that's someone that was was born into a family that spoke the language, um, that that the language, um, in in our case, Menominee, was spoken since birth, 
um, both parents um, spoke the language and speak the language. And, um, and so yeah, the, okay. that those are our first language speakers. Second language would be somebody that learned it later on in life, like, like myself or, and other people in our community. Okay. Well, well, Kayash, tell us a little bit about the connection between language and history, between language and culture. What is lost when a native language disappears? That's the big question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, we always say language is our most valuable intellectual resource we have as a group of people. And um, it contains so much about all facets of life, about raising families, about connection with the the geographic place where we live and our our place in the universe. And so with it comes all the things of of the human existence, right? So music, art, um, oratory, and I guess we call it oral literature for us historically, but all the things that help us to survive and help us to exist and to um, continue on living with what we were given and how we were placed here in this place in the universe. So all of that goes. So when a language goes, it's not really even about a sad story for that specific indigenous group of the tragedy that, that is lost of, of all this knowledge, but it's really about an, an impact on humanity in a global um, tragedy in that this knowledge really doesn't just benefit humans and some of these with cultural groups who, who learn a lot about ecosystems and habitats and stewardship of the land and, and how to live and how to take care of, I guess some people call resources, but all of that goes. Um, and, you know, the concern with indigenous language languages shouldn't be just respective to those groups who are who are fighting to save their languages, this should be a collaborative effort. Indigenous history is American history, too. And our languages are chock full of many, many things that will benefit all people uh, in the future. You're listening to Route 51. Our guests today are Walk No Way, Ben Greeno and Wawa Kayash Keller-Papp as we continue to discuss efforts underway to keep indigenous languages alive in communities throughout Wisconsin. Ahead, we'll hear about some of the challenges involved, and we'll answer your questions, too, when you call us at 800-780-9742. You can also send an email to us at ideas at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. We're back on Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Wawa Kayash Keller-Pap and Walk No Way Ben Greeno are with us today for a discussion on indigenous language education efforts and the impact on Native American culture and communities. We would love to answer your questions, too. You can email us, ideas at wpr.org, or join us by phone at 800-780-9742. If indigenous languages are not being taught from birth in the home... Is there kind of a a magic age that makes sense to introduce it in the classroom? When is this type of learning most effective? Walk no way. What what would you say to that question? I think that the uh, that the 
the studies that have been done is that, you know, that, that ch- children are natural sponges birth to five. Um, that's why we really concentrated on, on getting that, that immersion um, daycare head start going, um, as, you know, as, as fast as we could to be able to um, have semi-functional speakers, hopefully by, by the time they turn five. Walking away, you said that you learned the language later. You didn't learn it at birth. Wawa uh, right. what about you? How did you learn to speak your native language? Did you learn it growing up, or did you come into it later? Um, I, I wasn't functionally communicative or, you know, a functioning speaker when I was younger. I, I always tell everyone I knew two words, and those words were junior and geese, which is money and rutabaga. And I don't know why I knew those two words, but that's where I started. But, you know, always being connected with an indigenous community and having a fantastic family, immediate family and extended family, which really grew into a whole community of support. Um, We really lucked out. I lucked out. I, I always say that I just happened to meet the right people at the right time. And uh, learned it. Yeah, I'm. I am a second language learner too. So, and you say you you lucked out. At, but without these types of programs and without that support like that, what what other ways can children learn their native languages? Is it common for elders, for example, to ensure that they learn? Um, there are lots of ways we can learn language. There are certainly many more resources and. Uh, approaches that are accessible now than when I started, which was in 1991, I think I started when I was at university. Um, But there are many programs. Ojibwe, I think if if my statistics are correct, is, is one of the most widely taught indigenous languages in North America, meaning that it has programs and program elements in all sorts of uh, schools, elementary schools, high schools, colleges, and universities, and that includes Canada. But I think that the efforts aren't as concerted enough that that they should be in order to have a greater impact. Of course, Ojibwe country is pretty big, so you have a lot of cultural differences and some dialect differences too. But uh, I still think it's capable. So there are lots of tools out there people can use to learn. Lots of people who are active in networks to to get hooked up into to uh, to go for it and learn. Walk away. Tell us a little bit about the importance of immersion programs with respect to language acquisition. Why is immersion the way to go? Well, immersion it allows our our children to hear our language in its natural form. Um, for for so long we we've in our, in our district we've like we've taught the language in specific class language classrooms um with the immersion it's it's we we're moving from teaching the language to teaching in the language so all of these different things that we have in our classes in our forest um all around us are um are kind of woven into um and around the language like like uh, like Kelly was saying that it, it's it's really about um, like trying to direct a, a, a worldview, um, reconnect our kids with a worldview of of our language, which is a way of seeing everything in in kind of a different way and a different light. I'm curious 
what reaction has been in the Native communities? Well, Kayash, for example, how have elders reacted to language revitalization programs? Um, I think overall, very positively. Uh, when we started, you know, a, a lot of us who who got Wadakudating off the ground, we were active in, in all sorts of things, you know, doing conference presentations and um, different projects here and there in our communities. And, and once we realized how much time it takes to keep the immersion programs going, you know, we were pretty much in the rabbit hole, nose to the grindstone, I guess you'd say. And, and um, it didn't really talk about or show too much about what we were doing. And um, when we would have community gatherings and community events, um, extended families would come to support their students who were at Wadakudating. And so maybe we would have a, a concert or um, a ceremony or something, and they would actually get to see our students um, giving presentations or, or singing or, or talking about uh, what they're learning. And a lot of the audience, um, you know, would have extended family members present aunties, grandmas, great-grandmas, and uncles who maybe grew up speaking Ojibwe, but because they went to school or a place where they were forced to not use their language, um, they finally saw a reconnection to something of their youth. And it's a very, very emotional experience in those early years for, for many families, uh, finally seeing that breath being turned back into that sound and that sound vibrantly alive again in their communities. So, you know, people would cry and um, people were so moved and inspired and motivated. And it was kind of like a rekindling of, um, of our group efforts and our collaboration. So very, very powerful. And I think most of our, our elders are just who we as younger speakers were, were concerned. Oh my gosh, did I say that right? Or am I doing these, doing these things right with some of our cultural practices and whatnot, and then come to find out they're just so incredibly supportive of what we're doing. Walking away, you talked a little bit about the, the teacher shortages um, and, and how difficult it is to, uh, to get staff. Um, how, do you, how do you train a teacher who's not a first language speaker? Does that make it even more of a challenge for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um... A lot of our of our immersion um, trainees, uh, teachers are they're they're immersed in the language five days a week, eight hours a day, um, and that doesn't necessarily give them the the teaching know how. Um, it's just just to make them functional speakers, and so the, I think the challenge now um, coming into or building a school um, is to is to kind of weave our way into um, taking these these second language speakers, these immersion teachers, um, and and giving them the skills to to be able to um, teach math, teach English, uh, you know, whatever um, science, and um, and really kind of like revaluing our 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 traditional ways of teaching um, that our our way of teaching here is not going to reflect the way that our students learn in the primary school, which is like right across the parking lot here. Um, it's going to look different. And 
we have to be able to uh, make that okay for ourselves, make that okay for our administrators, um, and but most importantly, like okay for our community and, and our students to to be able to learn that way. And so there's a lot to um, to creating an, an immersion um, teacher that is able to do all these different things. Um, it's it's a heavy burden. And um, and I know that there's 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 a lot of of burnout. Um, just at being a regular teacher, there's a lot of burnout. But then you know having that 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 additional pressure of like trying to revitalize a language while we're teaching um, is is not easy. And 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 I really applaud our our immersion teachers that that are in the trenches doing this work. Um, they're really they're heroes to me and 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 I, I still cry when I hear when I hear the, the kids um, speaking the language well Akash, I, I want to ask you about some of these challenges too is it is it difficult to handle technologies and concepts that might not have been familiar to ancestors for example uh, not really um, I think the strength of a language is that it adapts to our human realities and especially with thank goodness the the um that the the link and the lineage from the very first speakers way back and that they're you know the miracle that some of them still exist today that all language all indigenous languages weren't completely wiped out and all indigenous people weren't killed off mm-hmm. um we have uh, reference. We have resources. We have treasures in the the existing first speakers who were who were raised that way. So those who are highly proficient, you know, into like a distinguished level of language proficiency, and some of them extremely creative individuals themselves, you know, our language is able to adapt to all all facets of the human existence and our our knowledge traditions. So I, I'd say. You know, I mean, if you want to talk about wordsmithing, you know, mm-hmm. you can get into those details, too. It's kind of fascinating, and all cultures kind of do that sort of thing. But, um, it, it, yeah, I don't think we've faced impossible challenges. Yeah, I am curious about the words like pizza or computer or algebra. I mean, those words didn't exist back, you know, way back. So how how does how's that incorporated then? Um well, some some language is very simple to to come up with um, words. I, I guess in in some of the language um, in the academic field or in the disciplines, you know, there are ways of categorizing vocabulary, for instance, or semantic patterns and whatnot, communicative patterns. So, for instance, you can hold up a, a pencil, and it's a thing, and it's it's usually pretty simple to come up with a term for that. So. Like Ojibwe-Gnostic, but when you talk about democracy or gender identity, um, some of those things where there's a a bit of abstraction and things need to be unpacked or they're laden with a variety of concepts and considerations, those things can get challenging too. And I think that's just the nature of language translation and work when when languages come together and cultural groups come together. And I don't think that's really changed over time much. and I think it's 
maybe a little bit challenging for us because most of us, I think, have been monolinguals all our lives, and we're not multilingual. We're not a multilingual community, really, uh, at least not in the last, um, you know, 50 years. But I think historically in the Great Lakes region, you had many languages going on at the same time. So uh, it maybe might have been more common back then. But yeah, pizza, for instance. Okay, so no one had pizza back in the day mm-hmm. um, coming out of the wigwam. Maybe they did, but as far as I know, they didn't. Anyway, so maybe the first time they saw those pizza, <laughs> those pizzas around, they, they came up with words to be descriptive, right? So one term that I've heard, kind of humorous, too, and some of the wordsmithing that comes up, and that's sort of a reflection of, of indigenous worldview and humor. So we would call it which is the bread that's been vomited upon. Some of them look that way. <laughs> okay, that's, that's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, walk no way. I you touched on this a little bit. And I want I want to ask you to expand on it a little bit more. Talk a little bit about the relationships that develop when adult learners partner with first language speakers. I mean, or you know, when when any of these uh, these these language connections are made, how do they strengthen the community? Yeah, you know. Here at, at our school at Kakena Wapata, we have um, pre-K and K mixed classrooms. And about half of our students come from the immersion daycare, immersion Head Start. Um, and half of them are, are, are kind of fresh and have very limited um, language uh, exposure. And so, uh, you know, our, our hope is that, that, um, that they, you know, that, that they teach each other out maybe out on the playground in the classroom, helping each other out. Um, I think we're, we're really looking at trying to foster a, 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 not just not just students who, who are, are functional in the language, but are, are, are functional in teaching the language to those that do not know it, which is the rest of us, you know, the rest of this community. Um, and so, you know, it, as, as somebody who has struggled with the language for, for many years, uh, second language learner, I still struggle with it. Um, you know, those, those little snippets of, of like the first time one of our kids spoke at the immersion daycare and just said a, a simple postal, a simple hello. That was, that was a huge, it was a huge deal to me um, and, and to the rest of the community. Uh, and 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 I think that that it gives a a, a, a great uh, light of hope for us. You know that that these little ones are connecting and 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 getting that that Menominee worldview that that so many of us have um, been denied. You know that that kind of language inheritance or cultural inheritance, um, and and it and it gives us a, a way to. To connect and, um, you know, as as we grow older, as we as we approach language as as an older, like an adult, we have these these barriers towards um, that we we've set up for ourselves. Oh, I can't do that. You know, I'm I'm too old to learn the language. Um, all these different things, but but when I'm personally, from my own experience, when I'm engaging with one of these little five-year-olds here and speaking in the language and, and having fun with the language. Um, I get a lot of, a lot of that stress 
that personal stress goes away and it allows me to, um, to understand a little better, um, just through maybe simple observation or simple interactions. And it, 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 it's given me more, um, more power to, to pursue and, and, and to be okay with kind of being goofy and silly with our language. Like, like, uh, like the pizza reference, you know, like, like these sure. different things are, are so fun and, and, and language has to be that. It has to be fun. You're listening to Route 51. Wawa Kayash, Keller Papp, and Waknoe Ben Greeno are our guests today as we continue our discussion on efforts to preserve Native American languages. Ahead, we'll hear about the ways public policy could shift the tide for these efforts and what communities can do to support these types of programs. We'd love to hear from you, too. You can join us by calling 800-780-9742 or email questions to us at ideas at WPR.org. I'm Shireen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. We're back on Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward. Our guests today are Walk No Way Ben Greeno and Wawa Kayash Keller Papp. They are both educators working in their communities to preserve indigenous languages that are now at risk of extinction. What would you like to know? You can call us at 800-780-9742 or email ideas at wpr.org to join in this conversation. There have been a number of federal legislative policy decisions over the years that have uh, tried to address this issue, at least. In 2021, I was looking at uh, the U.S. Department of the Interior, Education, and Health and Human Services launched this interagency initiative to preserve and promote the rights and freedoms of Native Americans to use and develop their native languages. This announcement was made as part of a uh, the 2021 White House Tribal Nations Summit. And I, I guess I'm curious whether this or any other legislation has had any impact that, uh, or at least the amount of impact that Native American tri- tribal leaders were hoping for. Wawa Kayash, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think we still have a long way to go in a lot of the legislation there um, and the efforts that are put forth at the federal and state levels in uh, with our representatives and our, our leadership in those areas. Um, there have been some hopeful changes and some positives, but I, I still think there's a lot more that really could be happening. Um, and locally, too, for people, you know, a lot of us who study language and who work in schools, we're so busy trying to come up with words for pizza you know, that, um, it's it's kind of challenging for us to even think about, oh, how am I going to wrap my head around policy now? But but really to put that on our radar, that that is our responsibility as well, collectively, right, within school districts and, and everything else. You know, and I think when you look back, you know, from civil rights movement and when indigenous languages first started being taught within schools, you know, that was a huge accomplishment, but we saw the little impact that that had for um, promoting the the longevity and the vitality and, and increasing the numbers of highly proficient speakers within our communities. And that charge shouldn't only be on the indigenous communities themselves or the schools. Um, you know, some programs fought really hard to have one hour a week, 
in uh, indigenous language. And here, when a school year has 42 weeks, you get 42 hours of indigenous language instruction in a year. So, and, and ways to flip that around and for, for that to be accepted, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, 46 weeks per year, uh, 1,800 hours. You know? So languages live by being spoken all day and every day. We have some uh, some of your friends on the phone, I believe. Uh, Wawa Kayash. Hello. Thanks for, for calling. Hello. Hello. Yes, we can hear you. Oh, Ani, this is Hannah Ori calling from Watakurating Ojibwe Language Immersion School. Um, I have my class here, my second and third graders here at Watakurating. We're listening to Keller talk from across the hallway. And we just wanted a quick thank him for everything he's done for the school and everything he's done for our language. So my kid just wanted to say something real quick. Give me a kid on a giggle. Wonderful. Thank you so much for calling. That was wonderful. You uh, you definitely have some fans there. Be <laughs> great. Well, I I just want to uh, I guess I want to understand what you think more could be done from a policy standpoint. Walk no way. Do you have some thoughts on on what what could be done so that more children uh, are are given that incredible opportunity that they that they're being given right now? Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know how. How I feel about um, like depending on on legislation, mm-hmm. um, you know, coming from a like like a grassroots um, kind of a, a grassroots homegrown uh, program, uh, you know that, that we need to feel that empowerment ourselves, and 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 yes, you know, like like we're part of a a, a grant to start this charter school and. And the money is amazing, um, and it is and it's allowing for our students to um, to get the the proper educational needs. But, but without you know that that community support, that community love, that that um, that that those students just showed, you know, just showed the um, Keller that you know that it it really needs to. Um, the, the most important thing is is that that our communities support us, and that our communities work towards building this. Um, uh, there, no, there, I don't think any amount of legislation is really going to help unless we are um, standing up and 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 fighting for what we really believe in. Yeah, well, what Kayash, do you feel too that this is more of a? It's got to be on the local level. That it's got to be a grassroots kind of effort. I think both. Both, you know, all levels of support will assist. They'll make a, a positive impact. So, you know, with the passing of the, the Native, America's, Native American Languages Act uh, years ago, you know, some of the, the uh, effects that that has had, and that was at a federal level, those are really important pieces. Um, there can be uh, impact at all levels. And I, I think a lot of the movements have started you know, grassroots at that level, 
um, because there wasn't anything else happening anywhere else. And it can't always be top down either imposed upon us. You know, it needs to be driven by the people who are doing the work and they need to be supported in it. You know, mm-hmm. our, our, we always say too about standards, you know, you look at some districts where they have mandated curriculum. Um, it's a, there's a lot of gatekeeping going on in terms of, of compliance and licensure about that a, a teacher has to have a piece of paper. And I know that um, many of us who have gone through mainstream teacher preparation pathways come to realize that what we were expected to do, read, and, and learn in those systems aren't necessarily applicable or effective within this type of educational context. So we always say we let our language and our culture lead, and we don't devalue our ways by defaulting to impose standards. And and all students should spend as much time on language and culture learning as they do on any English-based curriculum. So we we can meet any standards with our own ways and in our own language, and in this manner, I think we will do a lot better than a lot of the colonizer-imposed methods that have historically damaged Indigenous communities. Uh, Howard, Howard from Bayfield called and could not stay with us, but wondered about the possibility of working toward bringing the Ojibwe language into our language system and in new and different ways, like getting the state of Wisconsin to get them available to non-Indigenous students. What, what would you say to that? Who are you asking me or <laughs> whichever or whichever Paul, one you feel would be would be best to answer that question? I, I think there can be a whole slew of initiatives to bring language more uh, regularly, thoroughly, completely within all different facets of things in Wisconsin and Minnesota and the in the Ojibwe country. Mm-hmm. Signage initiatives, um, dual language, bilingual types of things. Um, You know, I think there's lots of opportunity for radio stations, um, not just ones on the tribal reservations, but even at, you know, some of the local levels. Um, Yeah, I think we could go on and on about ways to bring it together. There are learning resources, though, that can be available. Like, for instance, Rosetta Stone is working on uh, an Ojibwe version and so level one is available through the Malax Band of Ojibwe. You can contact them, and uh, they have a really great product. I that's interesting. You know that they have they have that product available. I wasn't aware of of that. Walking away, you have said in the past that this project feels like coming back to a traditional idea of what Menominee education is. Something that hasn't been done since you know probably before the boarding schools. How daunting. Did that feel when you started? Um, just as daunting as it feels today, it's 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 um it's it's not an easy thing to do. It's uh, uh, finding the, the resources. You know, like we have things that have, were written down, um, but we really have to like look at at our community and 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 the things that um, may may not necessarily be a, a language driven. Um, value, um, but like the way that we interact with our families, the way we treat others, all of these different things um, are needed to uh, to kind of like keep us on path. Um, 
to to reassure us that 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 things are not as as bleak as language loss um the the um what has been said about language loss mm-hmm. uh, leads us to believe. Well, Akash, what about a traditional Ojibwe education? You've mentioned that it goes beyond language, that it addresses how to be in the world. What have you learned about that over the course of your work? Uh, well, it has great implications, right, into all these different facets of life. Um, it, you know, a lot of our old-timers are knowledge carriers, people who we call first speakers. Um, they always talked about this gift from the money duke, from the spirits. They would say, take care of what the spirits have given us for, for the reason that we are Anishinaabe people. And it's our sound, it's our beliefs, it's our practices. And you know, they said when you take care of that and you really try to strive to live by those values and you take care of your community and your family, you'll be taken care of and good things will happen. And um, we've seen a lot of that. We've been fortunate to meet other indigenous people from all different parts of the world. We've we've established friendships and relationships and collaborations with all different types of communities and we've all learned together and grown together. So I think the implications for language, they go way beyond that into benefiting us to have good lives and to be healthy and, and successful and happy. Um, you know, it's about, uh, I always say about that act of defiance with your language, it's, it shouldn't have to be a fight. We shouldn't have to feel threatened. You know, it's about taking back our time with our children, learning our way and um, they said, take care of that. And and for other people listening, too, you know, they want to get started or they want to do things to to figure out how to be better with their language and how to how to make it happen for their communities. I always tell people, trust that process. Trust the process of starting to learn and never stopping, that you were, we're always lifelong learners and that um, you begin where you're at and you just keep going. But but that bottom line of languages do live by being spoken. And that doesn't mean just in a classroom from 8 to 4, Monday through Friday. That means every single place you are on planet Earth. And I always, I always like this image of when I get up in the morning and I take a breath and the sound that comes out of my mouth, is it the one I'm using now? Is it this way or is it this other way that um, the Spirit has given me to take care of myself and to talk to my people and to talk to the universe? Waknawe, what what does society gain by having children learn indigenous languages, society as a whole, outside of tribal communities? Well, I think I think you you, as, like like our kids are are gaining an uh, an understanding of who they are, where they, where they belong in the world, um, and you know if you have people who are strong, people who are um, strong in their ways, strong in their beliefs, strong in their their culture, um, strong in their spirit, then um, you know you you have a, a stronger people, and 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 that I think that. Um, 
that influences so many others and, and the possibility of that influence uh, moving into, um, into other schools, into other communities, um, and, and society in general is, is, is the potential there is great. We have about, oh, about a, a minute and a half left in our time together. And uh, Wawa Kayash, we talked a little bit in the beginning of the, the hour about what is lost when these languages uh, are allowed to fade away. But personally, what, what do you fear most about the prospect of that happening? Jeez, that's a big question there. Um, I think that just as humans overall, we we don't take seriously enough the the impact of our actions, of our thoughts, and our behaviors. And that there is strength and knowledge to be gained in understanding and accepting who we are individually in our different groups, and that there is truth and there is there is validity and and uh, usefulness in helping to sustain ancient knowledge systems that have sustained uh, groups of people ever since before there was this thing called the United States, before there was a thing called France and Europe and these other things, and that those systems collectively are still alive and are shared and still utilized successfully by many, many groups of people around the world. I want to thank you both. This has been a fascinating discussion. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward, extending once more a sincere thanks to our guests, Waknawe Ben Greeno and Wawa Kayash Keller-Papp. Our producers are Joy Ratch-Kramer and Kate Spranger. Our executive producer is Rick Ryer. Joy is also our on-air producer today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program and our previous programs at wpr.org slash route 51. If you have an idea for a future program, email us at ideas at wpr.org. Next week, we'll be back with another fascinating discussion, and we hope you'll join us. Until then, we're heading out of town. 